White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 578. All right, it's time for the Dune Review. And I am Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined by two great friends and podcasting partners who are fans of this property, and I'm expecting to hear some really good uh, takes from, shall we say. We are joined by John Ringer and Andy Fix. John Ringer, you're the co-host of the AU Wishbone with me, as well as other shows occasionally. Andy, you are the co-host of the Babylon 5 Review Podcast with me, as well as other shows occasionally. So you guys are like the two podcasting hosts, along with Alan J. Porter, that I hang out with the most, and it's kind of cool to have the three of us here as a kind of a summit to talk about this big movie. John, how are you doing tonight? Doing very well. Very excited to talk about this. Andy, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's always fun to hang out and, and nerd out with you, Van, so it's it's good to be able to do that with John and you at the same time. I'm excited. So, John, when did you see Dune, the new one? Uh, the new one, I saw it in the theater. Are you ready for this? I saw it in the theater Sunday midday uh, with my son, and then I came home, and Sunday night I watched it again with my wife and daughter on HBO. Wow. So you, yeah, you've seen it twice. I wish I had seen it twice, but I haven't had a chance to, to watch it again. I'll tell you all in a second what I did instead. Andy, when did you see it? I watched it. Uh, it dropped on HBO Max on Thursday night. So my wife and I watched it Thursday night. And like John, uh, I watched it again on Sunday. Well, this is cool. So you guys have seen it each double the amount of times I have. I went with Mira, my 13-year-old daughter, to see it Friday afternoon at like 430 and um, I was sure she was going to hate it. I was sure she's going to sleep through it. And in fact, she didn't go for Dune so much as she went to see Timothy Chalamet, you know, um, a heartthrob <laughs> for her. And so she was just like on the edge of her seat the entire time. She never fell asleep. She was always interested. And as soon as it was over, she demanded I take her to Barnes and Noble and get her the book. So we'll see how that goes. Because she's got a lot of books that she's gotten me to get her that she then kind of never reads. But we're all guilty of that from time to time. But uh, but that was very encouraging to me. That was my first sign that it wasn't just me, right? That that she, because she's not going to lie. You know what I mean? She's not going to lie. And she said she really enjoyed it. So um, we're going to talk about it a little bit. We've got some, some of our various usual categories. I had to modify our categories a little bit for tonight if you've heard if you guys out there in podcast land, if you've heard our movie reviews over the last few months or so, you know we don't we haven't really done a first run movie in a while, so we've had to modify them a little bit, but we'll hit on some of the key themes we always do. Um, one bit of breaking news, though, is that we just learned today that part two has officially been greenlit. There were rumors as far back as Thursday that that had happened, but we got confirmation apparently today that part two is going to happen, and that we can look for it. In exactly two years' time, in late October of 2023, barring any more pandemics and acts of God and hurricanes and giant meteors hitting the earth and all that kind of stuff. So, giant sandworms eating the theater and all that. So, um, are we all relieved that there's going to be a part two? <laughs> very. Very, very. Yeah, same here. Because the uh, that was the hardest part to watch of that movie is that that ending. I mean, they just abruptly ended it right when the story is going to get going. So my wife looked at me and she goes, "Wait a minute, that's it." <laughs> so yeah, I'm I'm very happy that uh, and relieved that they they greenlit the second part. And Warner Brothers does this all the time. They don't have 
the faith in their directors that that other studios have. So that's why Villeneuve didn't get the the two movie back to back filming deal that a lot of these franchises get these days. He should have gone to New Line. New Line cut uh, PJ a $300 million check on day one. Of course, I always tell people, people are like, well, they gave Peter Jackson $300 million. I'm like, yeah. And as soon as he walked out the door, that check, they were all like, oh, my Lord in heaven, what have we just done? Because <laughs> he directed a bunch of low-budget horror movies in Australia or New Zealand, and then they give him a $300 million check to go do Lord of the Rings, another a potentially unfilmable story. So, um yeah, this was a little bit different, but uh, well, New Line's part of Warner, but yeah, New Line had a different different leadership group. The thing that it kept making me think of, though, with Lord of the Rings was the Ralph Bakshi animated first half never got to do the second half, and I'm like, man, if we end up having to have a Rankin Bass cartoon to give us the second half, <laughs> like we did with Lord of the Rings, right? That would oh be my, such God. a waste. That's what they did, though. You know, there's the Rankin Bass Hobbit, and then there's the Bakshi Lord of the Rings, and then there's the Rankin Bass Return of the King. And that's, but, but among the three of those, you get the whole story. But man, man. So, anyway, um, I want to warn our audience that while we will be talking about spoilers, we'll be holding them until later. I kind of would like to do a little bit of for people that have just seen the movie and don't know anything else, right? I want to allow them to have a little bit of time here at the front. So when we're going to discuss this movie, we're only going to discuss this movie and any ancillary materials, the book or other productions for that cover this material. I don't want to talk about the. I don't want to give away the ending yet. Okay, we'll give a spoiler warning after a little while, and then we can you know bring in our thoughts about part two and how the uh, other versions of part two have been done. Because as I was, I, t- I said I would say in a little while what I was doing. I watched. Um, I started watching the 1984 David Lynch version, and I got about 20 minutes into it, and I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. It looks great, but oh, it just makes my brain hurt. And so I popped that one back out, and I put in the uh, the 2000 John Harrison Sci-Fi Channel version, which I always say it looks like a High School Musical production that was made on a budget of about $15, but the story is not bad. They really do get most everything in, and so I just watched that. So I'm ready to talk about all of these now. Um, so before we get into the sort of our category topics, um, John, just your overall impressions of this, did it succeed and it, did it meet your expectations? My expectations were high. Okay. Right. So as I should, should say be. that going in. My expectations are very high because of the source material, mm-hmm. the director, and the cast. So, but I believe it did meet my expectations. And I think it's because... Yeah, we'll talk about this a lot. I think he delivered an epic scale movie that the source material kind of demanded, that kind of epic scale. And I think it was there was a very high level of quality in the filmmaking. Yeah, so. I would agree. Andy, you're uh, kind of, did it meet your expectations and what were your kind of, where was the bar going in? I, I, like John, I had set a very high bar for this because uh, I, I too love the source material. And I, too, was disappointed with the previous incarnations. And Vilnev is just an, a visionary director. So I had really high expectations for this. And this actually surpassed those ex- expectations. It was spectacular. I was, I was stunned. Um, it, it, it was that good. So um, I was, The first time I was with my wife, and she looked over at me after it was over and was disappointed hmm. that uh, we didn't get a part two and she was just engrossed in the entire movie she she actually wants to watch it again and she is not a sci-fi person so there you go uh, yeah th- this movie is gonna win awards and stuff like that i'm sure it was it was that good 
Yeah, poor uh, John doesn't know this, but poor Andy, his Andy's wife has to walk through the living room from time to time when he's watching our Babylon Five re- rewatch, and she'll she'll walk through and see Londo with the hair or whatever, and I always feel bad for Andy because he's like, no, it's good. <laughs> and she's just probably like, because my wife is like, what is this, you know? So, uh, but um, I've told the story before that when I went to see Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I I kind of knew who Villeneuve was, but I don't think I'd re- I don't think I'd seen Arrival yet, and I don't really like Arrival to be honest with you. It's I don't. It, eh. But um, when I got out of Blade Runner twenty forty nine, I was blown away by that movie. It was incredible, and the music, something about the music as well as the direction and just the grandeur of how he directed it, um, it didn't make me think of uh, of Ridley Scott even though it was Blade Runner, when I walked out of the theater, I said to myself, whoever directed that movie needs to direct Dune. And like the next day, I read Denis Villeneuve, who directed Blade Runner 2049, to direct Dune. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I'm not the only one that thought that then because it just seemed so obvious to me. So Villeneuve got into uh, the movie directing business specifically to direct Dune. In fact, he took uh, Arrival and um, Blade Runner so he could get some experience directing science fiction movies because he wanted to direct Dune. So, yeah, this is the culmination of his his entire career. That's amazing, yeah. So many things about this movie we're going to talk about. The color palette of it was just remarkable. And it, and it, it was interesting, too, that like because if you watch the sci-fi version from 2000, it's very colorful. They put a lot of, um, you know, the costume designer... You know, let's put it this way. You know, if there's like a rock album and the engineer is really good friends with the drummer, then you listen to that rock album and the drums just dominate. You can barely hear anything else for the, you know. It's like the costume designer had had incriminating pictures of John Harrison. And so everybody in that thing is in bright red and bright green and bright blue. It looks like a freaking Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And you watch that and then you watch... The Villeneuve Dune, and it's all tans and browns and grays. The color palette was extremely limited, I thought, in this movie, but yet it almost was another character the way it was. You know what I mean? It's like it almost was another, it was the personality. John, did you have any feelings about like the music, the color palette, the cinematography? I I love his cinematography. I want to yeah. say that up front. I, um, the other movie that he made that I really enjoy that you mentioned is Sicaro. Which is yes. not, a hap- <clears throat> not a pleasant movie, right? But an incredibly well-made movie, and yes. in, in both Sicaro, like and in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, there's these scenes where they're in an aircraft of some kind and they're flying along, and you get kind of the aircraft shots, but also kind of the view. I'm looking out the window at the ground as I pass along, and he's so good at that, like that kind of and and again in in in. Sicaro, there's these kind of shots of the American Southwest that are a lot like some of the desert shots, kind of. Not the same countryside, but kind of the same feel a little bit mm. of looking out the window as they're, as they're flying overhead. And I, so I just thought the cinematography part was really, really impressive in this movie. Andy, do you have any thoughts about the cinematography, the music, how it all was like on another character almost, another part of the movie? Yeah, I agree 100%. I think he got across the immensity of the of of the setting 
I mean, every every shot that he took, there was something huge in it. What stuck in my mind was when uh, they were st- when the Atreides were still on their their ocean planet, and that giant, yeah. I mean, just massive submarine came out of the water. There was absolutely that, that had nothing to, at all to do with the story. It was just to show the immensity of the technology. Um, the the music w- just faded into the background. Well, there were some scenes when it was a little overbearing and it, it drowned out some of the the uh, uh, lines. But uh, the, the the music, everything worked together. The color schemes were just astounding. Like the the scene when when they're showing the Sardaukar on their on their planet, oh, know, preparing yeah. for for battle. That was just unbelievable. I mean, and then during during the the battle on on Arrakis. You could tell who the good guys and who the bad guys were. You know, I was pointing out to my wife, okay, the white guy, the guys in the white, and the guys in the black are the bad guys, and the guys in the gray are the good guys. So yeah, everything was very color-coded, and, and you could instantly see, you know, who was a good guy and who was a bad guy without even, you know, looking for faces or anything like that. So, yeah, it, it, it agreed with John and agreed with you. The cinematography was just astounding. I mean, it was just it, – it, it got across the, the enormity of the universe uh, that, you know, no, neither of the other movies really captured very well. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the Sardaukar first scene on Seleucus Secondus because that really struck me. But then it kind of immediately got washed away by the big battle of Arakeen, you know, that happened right after it. But I was really impressed because one of my there, I had a handful of things I wanted done better than they've been done before, and um, one of them that I wanted done better. I mean, I've honestly felt like the Sandworms have been just about as good in all three versions. It's the one thing all three versions got right because they knew they had to. I mean, even the dang Sci-Fi Channel version, the Sandworms are pretty cool. They're pretty good. Um, right. But but one thing I really wanted was better Sardaukar. Because the Sardaukar are... I've, I love the Sardaukar. They're very, impo- very important to me because they are the Star Wars Imperial Stormtroopers, but competent. They are if the Stormtroopers knew what the they were doing. Competent and scary. Yeah, scary, yes. They're, they're terror troops. Absolutely. That that scene when they were doing the blood sacrifice, that's the first time that had been, you know, shown mm-hmm. in, in on film was they were doing the blood sacrifice and the, the throat singing and they were just almost alien. Yes. I mean they were obviously human, but they came across as holy crap. It was like something out of a horror movie. It was awesome. It, that's, and it, yes. it, it to what you were saying, it, it, it made the Sardaukar as deadly and as scary as they're supposed to be. They weren't wearing the big floppy hats like in the, the sci-fi series. I mean, they were legitimately terrifying. I have to say, I'm kind of a fan of the big giant berets from the sci-fi <laughs> channel. Now, all right, let's let's. I want to look. At, here's the progression, real quick, because we're going to do this a few times. The Sardaukar in the David Lynch version from '84 are like guys in airport flame putting out suits that are black. They got like the little, they're like aimed guys from Marvel. They got like the little hole here. Otherwise, it's just a black plastic suit. Terrible, right? Terrible. There's And there's nothing given to make you think you should be scared of them. They're just like dime store stormtroopers. Okay, in the sci-fi version, they've at least got some kind of cool body armor and the big hats. They're in black and they look kind of haughty. That was a step in the right direction. But this, and, and by the way, I thought the body armor stuff that they did both with the Atreides and the Harkonnen and the Sardaukar was very effective because they had on like these suits. It's kind of an outgrowth of superhero costumes in movies where they've learned how to build stuff out. You know what I mean? Like if you look at like 1970s superhero costumes in, in TV shows and movies, it's like a leotard. It's skin tight. It looks stupid. Um, you, know, you have to be Arnold Schwarzenegger to look good in one. 
Whereas by the 90s and 2000s, they had learned how to make multi-layer, different texture, different material costumes that make Spider-Man look good, that make you know Iron Man look good or whatever. And they and Thor, you know, and they brought that to the table here with these with these suits. They didn't look like Iron Man armor, but they also didn't look like a leotard. They looked like they were built out just enough to be practical body armor. And I thought that was very well done. Any thoughts about the costuming, maybe? I mean, I, I think that's the practical costuming you described. The, the armor and the other pieces were really effective. I thought everybody's costume was appropriate for who they were and where they were. And, you know, kind of what they were doing or whatever. And I really appreciated that. The, um, you know, the way the Atreides dressed when they first got to, you know, Dune was very out of place. Yeah. They're walking around in the long black. Um, Stuff is and, and flapping. No, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, and so I liked, uh, I, I did. I liked the Sardaukar uniforms. I like the, um, and again, the, the Harkonnen costumes, they didn't overdo it. They didn't go David Lynch on that, but it was still <laughs> different and, and kind of weird, disturbing. Yeah. Andy, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I agree. The, uh, the, the outfits and Dune is unique in sci-fi where to tie together the, the low tech and the high tech at the same time. I mean, it was fascinating to see, and they all had different fighting styles and they carried different style weapons and they, they had the, the melee weapons with, with their uniforms, but, um, that, they were different from each other and they, they, they used them differently. So um, it, I, I really enjoyed how they did that. Um, but yeah, the costuming was phenomenal because it, you're trying to get the, the old style uniform, uh, military type uniform, but also make it science fiction. And, and I'll, I'll go more into that later. But um, yeah, I thought, I thought they did a wonderful job of it. I, it visually, they were very well done. You raised a really important point that I'm glad you did because I would have totally forgotten to say this. But I just on I at, at, I was just of course at Dragon Con last month and I, I I moderated a panel with Kevin J Anderson who along with Brian Herbert is writing the new Dune continuation novels. And somebody in the panel brought up the question about Dune having you know some things about it are far far future, but some things of it are like medieval. And I believe it was Kevin J. Anderson that made the observation. I, I could be wrong in attributing it to somebody that was famous rather than somebody that just came up with a good observation. But I think it was Kevin J. Anderson that said that part of the secret of it being medieval, of a lot of the, a lot of the stuff in it being medieval, and they don't have computers, they don't have all kinds of laser weapons other than just the one laser gun. You know, they, they, it, A lot of it is very medieval. And he was saying that was smart because it makes it timeless. If you compare Dune to almost any other science fiction work written at the same time, the early 60s, they have dated themselves so badly. You know, if you go back just a few years before that to like E.E. Doc Smith and the Lensman books, they have like diesel-powered spaceships and all. And everything is atomic, atomic, atomic. Atomic energy is everything, you know, from back in the 40s and 50s. But what, what Herbert did was to remove all the stuff that basically could get dated. You can't say, oh, the Dune computers are so silly because they don't have computers. <laughs> That's just brilliant. It was a, one of those things that Herbert did that whether he meant to or not, he absolutely made it a timeless story that is as much an, a fable from the past as it is a look at the far future. So I was just really impressed. I had never thought about that before. I knew that it, it worked as like a timeless story, but I'd never put my finger on why it's never kind of, you know, started to look stupid. And it never, ha it never will 
because the 12th century is never going to change. You know what I mean? It's always going to look like the 12th century Europe. So Yeah, uh, Herbert built the, the science fiction involved in the Dune series wasn't so much the, the hard science fiction like the lasers and the, the, the star travel and all that. His science was a soft science. It was biology yeah. and um, the, the ecology and stuff like that. That's what he concentrated on. That's what he, he did. And I, I entirely believe that the, the dichotomy created by the, the science, I mean, everything, it, there, there's very low tech, but there's a high tech reason for the low tech. Like yeah. the melee weapons that they use, they have to use it because of the, the, the shields. And I mean, just everything, it, 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 it's, un, it's, it's just really cool how everything, the, the ornithopters, obviously they're high tech, but they're based on, on something <laughs> built and designed by Michelangelo. I mean, it, it's just... A, a, just the the balloons you know everything you know they're using balloon power which is from the 17th 18th century so <laughs> yeah er, everything is tied together with the high tech and the low tech and in, in the same device so it's 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 fascinating how how that was handled even this even the space travel yeah where they they fold space using mental powers it's they don't have to worry about the warp engine getting you know outdated or whatever they're faster than light travel because they don't go faster than light they just bend space and they're somewhere else there's no travel really to it it's like an elevator almost or something you know that's really interesting yeah well all right let's go ahead and get into our categories here we're about almost halfway through it and we want to talk about a few of our specific things so we've touched on this a little bit but let me start with Andy um what did you know or think about? We, we always ask the question, what did you think or know going in? So did you have, uh, we talked, we had, we said, we've already said we all had high expectations, but what did you know about it going in and, and how did that color sort of your expectations and your perceptions? Um, I have read all of the uh, original Herbert Dune novels. Um, I considered the first Dune to be probably arguably the greatest science fiction novel ever. And it's obviously my favorite. Um, so, <laughs> and, and I had seen all the other incarnations of, of the film incarnations of the story. So yeah, that would, that's it. it I, my expectations going into this were, were highly, uh, colored by, by what I brought to it. Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of the property and I, I didn't just want it to be good. I demanded that, that it was good. So I had very high expectations. Um, I, I, it, you make me think there because, yeah, I think all three of us have read all six of those books and, and probably a few of the other continuation. So we're all fairly knowledgeable about this property. But, um, John, before I ask you, I was, was going to say um, somebody asked me, like, there's six big novels. Like, they're like, you know, how long does Paul's story go? And I just started laughing. And I'm not going to give any spoilers here, but let's just say that between the first book and the sixth book, a lot of time passes. So don't be worried about, you know, things like, I don't know, the Atreides or whatever. A lot of water, well, a lot of sand goes under the bridge between the first book and the sixth book. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like if the first book was Star Trek with Captain Kirk, by the time you get to the sixth book, it's like St. Elsewhere or something. It's not, you're not worried about, you know... Captain Kirk anymore. All right. So, John, what was your uh, sort of like, what was coloring your thinking going in and, and all that? I think my, what was coloring my thinking was every announcement about this movie going, yeah. you know, as it approached made me more excited. Every time they announced a new cast member, it was somebody great. Yes. There are so many great actors in this movie. Incredible. Um, every time they announced, and then also uh, the, you know, the director gave me so much hope. 
because of what you said, and again, it's exactly what you said about Blade Runner 2049, the way he handled, and in Arrival too, the way he handled science fiction technology, but also made it seem real, physical, you know, not some fancy toy or whatever, but a real thing that had was practically designed and worked and that kind of stuff. So I had a lot of faith in him as a director and with the cast and with the source material, I, you know, that really made me excited. Yeah. That cat, the funny thing about the cast was when they announced, you know, most of them are like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and a lot of them were people that, that Villeneuve works with like Josh Brolin, right? Over and over that kind of thing. Um, Oscar Isaac, I think. But when they announced Jason Momoa, I'm like, oh, that's cool. I love Jason Momoa. I've loved him ever since Stargate Atlantis. And I'm like, I guess they just are going to throw him in as like a little, you know, just throw a bone to the action adventure people rather than all these really great actors. And danged if if Momoa wasn't like one of the best characters, best actors in the dang movie. I was like, look at Jason Momoa. Look at you go. Andy, did you have any thoughts about the cast while we're talking about the cast? Uh, my wife said that about 20 minutes of the movie, she goes, I don't know what the story is going to be like, but this is certainly the prettiest movie I've ever seen because <laughs> everybody in there is just just gorgeous. I mean, That's fair. on both sides. So, yeah, I know. I, I thought the cast was absolutely phenomenal. And I've known that Jason Momoa was a good actor. Um, everything he's been in, he, he, he hasn't been given really meaty stuff uh, much, but when he the stuff he's been given, he's knocked out of the park. So I, I was totally confident that that he would uh, uh, take Duncan Idaho and just and just make him the the complete uh, uh, warrior that every that you know he was in the book and all that. So yeah, I, I I don't know what else to say about the cast. I think they were they were spot on. And uh, um, Isaac, uh, I forget his name, the the Duke of Trades, Oscar Isaac, yeah, perfect, Oscar Isaac, yeah perfectly cast he was he was i mean you felt the the emotion you felt his honor uh and every every word he said every line he delivered you you knew he was an honorable solid person who cared for his family and and cared for the the his his troops and cared for even the people of arrakis and wanted to do right by them so yeah everything was was perfectly cast I, I've never seen Oscar Isaac give a bad performance. Everything from Star Wars to the Robin Hood movie where he's the nasty, you know, John. So I just think he had better material to work with here and it yeah. made him better. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing about Momoa, too, when he people were saying he was one of the best things about the movie when it first, you know, was came, came out in Europe. And I was thinking, I bet my immediate thought was, I bet that a lot of this movie is so serious that Momoa can't help but light up the screen in a fun way, and so he's getting people's attention. And I feel like that actually was kind of how it was, right? Because so much of this movie, and I don't mean in a necessarily bad way, but a lot of this movie was very dour and serious and grim. And so when Momoa's on there grinning and making jokes and hugging Paul, it, it kind of warms the temperature up just a little bit. you know. And then when he you know does his sacrifice... You know, battle to help everybody get away and everything later in the toward the end. Again, it just makes you kind of feel good about that character and his performance. I um I was not surprised that that he was that good. You, you put somebody in there in that role that's going to light things up and lighten the mood a little bit. I think, and he and he did that. You know, Momo is good for that. He he humanizes not just his character, but he humanizes the the story. Um, mm-hmm. He he brings it. He makes it relatable to just the average Joe in the audience. He's like, oh yeah, you know, Momo. You know, that character is like somebody I could hang out on the couch with and have a beer with. So yeah, he humanizes yeah. something that might be difficult or or 
uh, set you know further back than what most people are used to. Yeah, I agree. Speaking of the characters, I'm going to ask both of you: um, Were there any characters from the book? And again, we're going to avoid you know spoiling like the actual plot of part two, but I don't think that's going to be a problem. We can we can mention that characters exist without saying what happens to them and you know do they live or die and all that. But were there any characters from the book that you expected a lot that would show up and either didn't show up or did but got very little to do? Because let me frame it this way for you, because I think this will make sense. I felt like Villeneuve and the other screenwriters, I felt like they looked at the source material and they said, we are going to basically remove or minimize anything that does not directly uh, affect the main plot. So if you watch, because we're going to compare a little bit, if you watch the 1984 version, one of the problems that I thought that David Lynch had in 84, he tried to include everything and explain everything, even if it really didn't matter, right? He had voiceovers and you know people reading encyclopedia entries and narration he used every trick in the book to explain stuff, and Villeneuve was kind of like, his attitude seemed to be, like, they never explained Mentats. Not a single time did they say a word about Mentats. You knew that the Duke had a guy kind of around him giving him advice. You knew the Baron had a guy kind of giving him advice. But they never said, these are living computers, and there are no computers in the Dune universe, and so these people take this spice medicine that makes them be able to... They don't explain stuff. If, if you didn't need to know it, they didn't waste time on it, and it didn't distract, okay? So your thoughts on that, and then maybe also... Because I didn't really realize I was going that far down that rabbit hole. But then also your thoughts on, like, were there any characters that because of that you were expecting to see and we didn't see? Uh, Andy, what do you think? Uh, I think uh, Villeneuve did a lot of his explaining visually. Like you, you mentioned the Mentat. When he rolled back his eyes and and paused for a second, that's all the explanation that you needed. Oh, he's doing something with his brain. Oh, he, he's giving numbers. Oh, he must be some sort of computer genius. Some, he, he must be connected to computers. I mean, my wife even picked up on that, and she has zero uh, yeah. sci-fi knowledge. So, yeah, uh, and the, the thing with the, the Harkonnens, with the Baron Harkonnen, when his little, when he went to float, you know, his little back, his spinal implant mm-hmm. glowed, and then he started floating. He didn't explain why, he didn't explain any of that, but he just did it, and and he, you know, Villeneuve did all that visually. Um, that said, I, I think that the I, I was expecting the the Harkonnens to be a little bit more vile, yeah, because they are truly, truly vile, um, and I don't think that that was really brought into it as much they 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 just come in as kind of like bad guys yeah um but not as the the monster the monstrous vile uh people that they that they truly are so i don't know if that's going to be touched on in in the second part but they just came across as you know just kind of like nasty guys who were betraying the, the the atreides family and and part of that andy is because we never saw fade that was one of the people I was going to mention we didn't get because a lot of how we are introduced to how nasty the Harkonnens are is that Fade Rautha the because we saw Beast Glossu Beast Robin who is the older nephew we saw him that was Drax um, right. but we never saw the other one and while while Beast Robin the older one is um, he's brutal there's no subtlety to him but Fade is just as brutal, but he's a lot more subtle and cunning. And I think that that 
would have given us a little more insight that they're not just they we all we really saw the Harkonnens in this movie is brute force. We didn't see all their very subtle calculations and machinations. And it, I think that Piter and Fade give more to that. And there was almost no Piter, the Mentat. And then he's dead, so we're not going to get any of him. Basically, Villeneuve said we don't need him. So, John, your thoughts about like that, like the characters that are missing, and did you expect any of them, and, and, and what did you think of the ones we did get, but just a little bit of? Um, I, I really appreciated how he didn't explain anything. He treated all of these like adults, and he's like, we're not going to, we're just going to roll with it, and if you need to know something, you'll just pick it up along the way. And, and I think you're right. He did cut all the extraneous stuff out, and I think it helped. I thought maybe we'll see the, the, you know, the emperor's daughter you know, in addition oh, to yeah. Fade. I thought yes. those are the, you know, Rulian or whatever. Those are the two people mm-hmm. I was kind of expecting to at least get a hint of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't bother to, to include any of that, to, you know. And I think I think it made sense, and I think it's uh, they weren't necessary. There was a lot of setup he needed to do for this movie, and so it cut all the extra stuff and focus on the core. And so I, I was okay with it. And bear in mind that um, he's going to have to cast a whole new movie for part two. So everybody that he left out of part one, he doesn't have to try to bring back. He can find somebody new. Because I was thinking, you know, they never showed the emperor. They never showed the emperor in this entire movie, and I couldn't believe it. And then I thought, well, I mean, you know, the money he's going to save now by not having to pay Momoa, he he can put toward hiring a brand new. He's not have to worry about like, you know, if he if he had cast, you know, whoever the equivalent of Jose Ferrer is in in twenty twenty one. He doesn't have to worry about him getting run over by a bus and not being in 2023. So he can go out and get somebody brand new, and I think that'll be pretty cool. You know, somebody said, how are they going to bring back the entire cast? Well, they don't have to bring back the entire cast. Some of them aren't going to be in it because they're dead. Some of them aren't going to be in it. Just They're not just going to be in it. And there's going to be new people, right? So there we go, you know. Um, do we have any other – I have always our random factoids of note. Andy's very used, to, of course, to this, in fact, that we usually try to find any other little factoids we want to throw out there in our Babylon 5 show. Did you guys have anything that we haven't mentioned so far other than we're going to do our last few categories here that, that you've dug up or that you wanted to mention? John, go ahead. I do have one. Oh, oh I'm sorry. sorry. Go, go ahead, ahead, Andy. John. Go ahead, Andy. Uh, I, found, I found one that I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. In every filmed version of Dune, the actor that played Stilgar – was also a Bond villain. No! Yes. So wow. uh, the, the, current, the current Stilgar was, the, was a villain in, in Skyfall. Yep, yep. Um, the, the gentleman in the, the sci-fi production was a villain in Octopussy. I did not and know that. And the, uh, um, the original 1984 Stilgar went on to be the villain in License to Kill. Holy cow, you're right. That's amazing, yeah. That's like all of them keep showing up and kept showing up in Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's like right. places that Bond villains go: Game of Thrones and uh, Dune. How about that? That is a really good one. That's you. You kicked it, kicked butt with that one, D- John. There's no way you or I are going to follow that. That's pretty cool. But did you have anything you wanted to mention? <laughs> uh, the, uh, Hans Zimmer invented new musical instruments for this movie. Wow! To create okay. the score. But also, like, you were not expecting bagpipes, were you? No! Yeah. <laughs> Somebody said the most shocking thing of the movie was that bagpipes are still around in 10,191. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome because it goes back to the, the uh, medieval technology bringing, being brought into the future. I mean, they use pikes and swords, so why not bagpipes too? Yeah. No, sure, yeah. And by the way, that's here's a super nerdy point I do want to mention as a factoid. Um, 
People, you know, people get hung up on it's the year 10,191. And I always quick to point out, the year 10,191 in the Dune universe has no bearing whatsoever on 2021. They are counting 10,191 since the founding of the Spacing Guild. And I'm assuming that doesn't happen in 2022 or 2023. That's going to be on down the road quite a way. So in terms of how far in the future Dune is from us, it's way more than 10,191. I mean, like way more. We just have no idea. Um, and I love the Spacing Guild so much. I, we, in the spoiler space, I got a couple of things to say about them. I can't wait to see more of them. We only got like a little tiny glimpse of them in this. And I'm really... I. I like I like all the bad guy groups, and they're not all bad guy. But I like the spacing. They're kind of neutral. The spacing guild, the Sardaukar. I love the Benny Talexia. Oh God, yeah. There's so many cool groups. Some of them evil. Not many of them good. I guess the best they really get are kind of medium. I mean, even the Fedakin, and we'll get to them in the spoiler space, are not really good. Honestly, I want to, I want to ask both of you your opinion about that. So let's go ahead and hit a couple more. Did you guys have any thoughts about how it compared to the other two filmed versions beyond what we've already talked about? And if you don't have anything else, if you feel like you've already said all, it's fine. But, but like I like I've said before, I thought the '84 version looked really good for the most part, but terrible script. I thought that the twenty, the two thousand John Harrison version. And honestly, if you've ever seen Children of Dune on the Sci Fi Channel, it came on about three or four years later. They used pretty much the same cast and. It's way better because it gets the story right, just like their mini, the first one did. But it looks so much better. They changed costume designers, they changed all the you know the technical people, and they got rid of all the funky hats. That's the one thing about the 2000 Harrison version is everybody's got these giant, colorful, funky hats, and I'm just like, what in the world? So, um, Andy, do you have any thoughts about the uh, the other two versions? Kind of compared to this, real quick. I, you know what, I. I think we've already touched on all the, the important stuff. I will say that there was a, another filmed version or a, a version that was supposed to be filmed before the 1984 version. And we did see some of the production designs from that in the Flash Gordon movie. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, the, uh, the director of the Flash Gordon movie used all the sets and uniforms and all that stuff for, for his movie because they spent so much money on that. So we got a glimpse of what I think it was Jodorowsky or something like that. Yeah, that's we got right. a glimpse of what of what his movie was was going to look like. And this makes me want to go back and watch Jodorowsky's Dune again because there's a documentary that talks all about it that's really interesting. Yeah, my only thought about the again, I went to the 84 inch version on opening night. I told the story before Van, and I walked out of the theater and I pushed the theater doors open and I was like, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was so mad. Yep. That, yep. And one of the reasons I was really, truly mad is because a key element of the book is why is the emperor mad at the Atreides? Why does he want to do this? And it's because of the quality of their troops and their leadership and what they've done to develop troops that were basically getting to the level of the Sardaukar mm-hmm. and through the methods they were using and stuff. And the 84 version invented this stupid sound weapon thing that as the reason for that. Oh. And I was like, oh, that's so the weirding yeah, that, module that made me mad. Yes, yes. Oh, absolutely, hundred percent. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I. There's things I still enjoy about the '84 and the 2000 versions, but 
I think we've got the standard set now, though I do think I'm going to go back now and not only watch Jodorowsky's Dune, I'm going to go ahead and watch Children of Dune again, too, because it is pretty well done. If you haven't ever seen it, if you like watched the first one and just did like John with the 84 version and said, no, 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 the, 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 the sequel that they did is actually pretty good, and it looks really good, um, and it really combines Dune Messiah and Children of Dune. They, and, and here's one thing, here's one credit that I will give the sci-fi version. They do not shy away from all the mystical stuff. Right, the Lynch version was very technical. It tried to be all sci-fi, but Harrison is like they're in trances, they're seeing visions, they're like they're on drugs, man. You know, and he puts all that in there. It's it's in there. I'm I, I was watching it with my wife was kind of in the room and she's kind of going, "What is all this?" You know, and I'm like, "They're tripping. Just don't worry. It's all good." <laughs> I, I think the Lynch version kind of missed the point of Dune. Yes. Yeah, I agree. So. What did what are like the main couple of things, Andy, that this version got right? And I mean, again, there's so uh, many we could talk about, but right. No, oh, absolutely. And I touched on this before, but the Sardaukar car w- was absolutely perfect. Like I said, they were oh, terrifying, um, and just the immensity. Everything that we see, every science piece of, of science fiction equipment that we see, like the all the ships, they're mm-hmm. huge, except for the the ornithopters. Everything else is big. I mean, even the, the the spice mining machine, the spice harvester, and the balloon devices that that uh, take it away, um, everything was just massive, and that that really uh, expressed the grandeur of of the setting. I mean, it made it seem that the made the science fiction seem almost magical. I mean, it was just so big. Everything was so big. I thought that was spectacular. John, your thoughts on uh, what they really got right. I, I got four things very fast. Ready? Let's do it. Epic feel, epic feel and scale. Yep. It felt like the Ten Commandments. <laughs> okay. I mean, again, it was that kind. It's a big, epic scale Hollywood movie. Big scenes. You know, people standing on cliffs in front of hundreds of giant spaceships. Whatever. Amazing. Big, and it made. But it also it didn't feel like it. It felt good. That felt really impressive. Pacing. This movie. So many modern movies are like boom, 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 boom. Like the audience has got to have a hundred things thrown in their face in the first five minutes. And this movie was like, we're just going to play the slow play, the long slow play because we know it's worth it. And we're going to do the movie and do it right. And you'll get there. We're not going to have to have a hundred fights at the beginning. Hey, hey, so I people, love pe- that. People complain that it took them too long to get off Caladan. I'm like, I'm glad they finally took their time yeah. to get everything in before they left. This yep, is, again, the, go ahead. It gave the story room to breathe. Yes, 100% yes. And it's like, again, we're doing the Lord of the Rings. You can't leave the Shire too fast. It's just That's like right. that. Yep. Um, yep. So those two things, I like the the physical feel of the actual props, the, the, the design of the physical props, the little compass thing, the thumper, the mm. still suit, um, the... You know, the little movie projector thing that Paul put with that kind of stuff all just looked uh, like it was lived, like it was real, like it was an actual thing and not some toy design or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the other thing we haven't talked about as a character, I kind of liked how they changed Wheat Keen's character. Yeah. Um, I like what they did with that character. And I like kind of the actress and I like her, the, you know, her role in the movie kind of being like, I'm not allowed to say anything. Mm hmm. So. Yeah, that was good. I thought that was interesting that that she wasn't like this super partisan uh, Fremen ally. She was like, "Look, I'm 
I work for the emperor. I can't take a side. I'm just the referee here and everything. And until almost the very end, I thought that was a very interesting twist. And it wasn't what I expected. Uh, and also, I think it kind of ruled out her being Chani's mother. So that was a that kind of forestalled a thing that obviously is not going to happen. So it's not a spoiler. Uh, a couple of things I want to mention. Andy mentioned the Sardaukar, and I was going to mention this earlier. I, here's the reason I think that it's very important that the Sardaukar be competent. In a movie like Star Wars, we already know the heroes are super heroic, so the, so the, 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 the cannon fodder they fight don't have to be super formidable. But in Dune, the only way that we know that the Fremen, the, the Fedakin, which is the name of the it's not again not a big spoiler to say that the that the the Fremen warriors have a name. It's called the Fedakin. The only way that we can know that the Fedakin are super super formidable is to find out that the people they're fighting are super super formidable, and then they beat them. So if the Sardaukar were like stormtroopers and the Fedakin beat them, you'd be like, oh yeah, who couldn't? My grandmother could beat them. But if we are shown up front, these guys are like the you know these are five star recruits here, the whole army. And then you beat them? You must be... I remember the moment in the book where that started happening, where the Fedakin beat the Sardaukar, and I'm like, holy crap, these little desert guys are good. That was a shock to me. You had that shocking moment of realizing, you know, that the that the Fremen... You know, because this whole thing is a... What's the word? Not analogy, but... Uh, um, I'm not, I don't know. I can never remember the word, but the whole thing is basically... Muhammad coming to the Arabs and leading to the caliphate defeating the Persian Empire. I mean, to the fact that the emperor's name is is a Persian name, Shaddam, right? I mean, it's the Arab uprising defeating the Byzantines and the Persians. And this is where the Arabs come out of the desert and shock the civilized Persian Empire and take them down in five minutes. And that, that to me, was really important. Um, the other thing, you mentioned the, the ornithopters. They've been shown in other things, but never this cool. This is an example where they could really use modern special effects to make something very basic seem really both effective and really cool. It had a stylistic trait to it. They looked like they looked like dragonflies. And I thought that was really cool too. All right. So I think we're agreed on that. What about what did they get anything wrong? Andy, let me start with you again. Did the did Villeneuve get anything wrong that you kind of felt like you know I might have done that a little bit different? Uh, no, <laughs> short answer no. The only thing that I can think of that I wish she had done a little a little differently, and I touched on this earlier, was uh, uh, showing uh, the Harkonnens to be more monstrous. Um, yeah. Other than that, I think he nailed everything. So, and th- oh, this movie needed more pugs. There wasn't <laughs> enough pugs like in the 1984 <laughs> version. So <laughs> that's true. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's Seriously, good. though, other than that, I mean, he uh, he nailed everything. It was perfect. John, any uh, anything you got wrong or that you had just done a little bit differently? I don't. We did not need pugs, and it did not need you know more <laughs> grotesqueries from the Harkonnens. I was, I got, I, I got it. I, the only thing to me is, I felt like you know we had the big battle of Arakeen, and then there was the whole we're in the storm and in the desert. It was a little bit of kind of Return of the King feel to me where the movie yeah. peaks kind of two-thirds of the way through. Yes. And then you're kind of on this emotional slowing down the rest of the movie. So I'm just throwing that out there. I thought, I'm I again, I love the movie. I'm very happy. But I feel like that was a thing. Yeah. Um, no, I did too. No, in fact, let me say this. 
You're exactly right, and I'll at least from my, my perspective, and I'll say this: the movie that reminded me—I know what you mean, Return of the King, because that's kind of the, the that's kind of the touchstone that people go to when the ending gets drawn out a little bit too much. But the but the movie that it reminded me of in that way was Casino Royale. The first time you see Casino Royale, you feel like, okay, aren't we at the end? No, wait, now we're doing this. Okay, now we're at the end. No, wait, is that? No, ten times you think you're at the end of that movie. Yes, and things keep happening. Now, but here's the thing, though. I've watched Casino Royale ten times since then. Once you understand, once you have internalized where the ending is, and you know you're not to it yet, that kind of goes away. Like, the first two times I watched Casino Royale, I'm kind of like, okay, when are we ever going to... I didn't like it as much. I go back and watch it now, and it's one of my top five Bond movies, because I understand its structure more. And I think this movie is going to benefit from that, too. I think when I see this for the second, the third time, I'm going to be like, okay, I know we're not done yet. Okay, I know we're going to do a little bit more. I know there's going to be the knife fight, you know, which, by the way, is really thematically smart to end it there because of stuff we're going to talk about later. Um, But also, um, I think that in the future, we're going to be watching them back to back, and it's not going to matter like Lord of the Rings. Because there's parts of the two towers that when we saw it in the theater, we're like, oh, Lord, come on. You know what I'm saying? But when you go back and watch all three Lord of the Rings movies now, you're just, it's fine. There's no problem at all. You know what I mean? So, okay. So any other thoughts about right or wrong before we move on? Good? I I, I mean, I didn't like how the movie ended. I mean, it, there was really no proper ending to the movie because it is the first part of a, of a two-part movie. So yeah. I, I was... I mean, knowing how the story continues and all that, knowing there's another movie coming out, it's not that big of a deal. But, I mean, there are other movies that you knew was only the first part of a two-part movie that had a complete movie in the first movie. This this one didn't seem because it just kind of ended, you know? I don't know how you could have done it, though. I mean, I totally agree with you, but I don't know how you could have done it. I don't know. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I, I'm totally fine with it because I knew it was, you know, I, I, I know what's coming next. So it, <laughs> the the awesomeness is just going to ramp up from here. But yeah, uh, when, when watching with my wife, she, she was confused as to, wait a minute, what? That That's the end. That's right in the middle of the story. I was like, well, yeah. <laughs> well, somebody, I had a, I had a conversation yesterday or today, I forget which, with somebody about how compare this to Fellowship of the Ring ending. And the one thing Fellowship of the Ring had going for it was that it ended at a natural break in the story. And Peter Jackson, I thought his genius move in Fellowship was that the entire... He prepared for it. He knew that they were going to have to break the movie off there, and he prepared for it this way. Through the entire movie, Frodo keeps trying to give the ring away, right? Would you take it? Would you take it? Gandalf, would you take it? Galadriel, would you take it? You know, uh, Aragorn, would you take it? Anybody, pizza delivery man, would you take it? He keeps trying to give it away. And at the end of the movie, after they've been through everything, he has it in his hand... And he closes his hand on it and kind of goes, you know, like, I'm resolved to do this. And that gave you a closure. And there just really wasn't a point like that unless you kind of drastically rewrote things. And we didn't want him to do that. But I do think it's not going to be as much of a problem because you know that all three of us in the future are going to watch these back to back. We're going to pull Absolutely. out the Blu-rays or whatever. We want to watch them back to back. So it's not going to be an issue. But it was an issue right now. And it'll be an issue for the next two years. So, uh, were there any other? I, we, I, I mentioned characters. I do think that the three characters I expected to see and was a little disappointed. I wanted to see Fade. I wanted, to, which is Harkonnen's other nephew. I wanted to see Princess Irulan, uh, just because I love that character a lot from the book and from the other productions. And I, I love the actress that plays her in the in the John Harrison version. Um, and I wanted to see uh, the Emperor. 
And it seemed odd to have all three of them missing. Though, again, I think that they all play big enough parts in part two that it's okay with me that he's going to cast them now. You know what I mean? Like I said, he's not going to have to worry about the actor dying or something between movies because he's going to cast them now. Were there any other characters? That we could, Are those pretty much the main ones that we were and missing? I agree. I agree. I don't think Fade would be missed by, by somebody who wasn't familiar with the books because they don't know. Right. Um, I think the emperor. I think the emperor not being there was actually more effective because it made him seem more like a force of nature okay. than a, an actual person. Because if you if when you introduce him as a person, he becomes just another just another man. Um, but right now he's the emperor. He's this you know this this figure that's moving all these pieces, and, and he's he seems almost supernatural, kind of like you know the emperor, the the Persian emperor, or the the mm-hmm. Japanese emperor. He's a, yeah. a godlike figure, and and introducing him as as a cast member early on what would have taken a little bit of that uh, away. And that's another good point is that we have to have the emperor way up high in our estimation so that the ending of the story, which we won't give away has even more impact that because to me, the ending of this story, which will be the ending of part two has a huge impact because it's all been set up so well. Just like I said, when the, when the Fidekin are able to beat the Sardaukar in various battles, you know, for example, that has a huge impact because we've understood how badass the Sardaukar are. And it's going to be the same thing with the Emperor and obviously, you know, other, other characters. So, okay. Uh, was there any, we like to say the pinnacle. I always say the pinnacle in these. Was there anything this movie represented the high point of? Like, is this, I mean, there's obviously a lot of Lawrence of Arabia in this story. Not just this movie, but this story. Um, so I'm not sure this was the pinnacle for desert movies because Lawrence of Arabia is a pretty pinnacle desert movie too. So what, what are, um, was there anything this was a pinnacle for other than presentations of Dune in live action? (laughs) I think it was the pinnacle of presentations of Dune in live action. I, I think this is the pinnacle for, uh, uh, traditional golden age science fiction adaptations i think mm. you know uh, others have been tried like foundation and and just numerous others have been tried and uh, have not succeeded and i think this was a beautiful adaptation of one of the greatest science fiction stories ever told i, I good point i've got to say i have really been enjoying foundation on apple plus the it's it's unfortunate the first two episodes they showed together like a two-hour block those were the worst episodes by far they were boring but starting with like episode three, that thing has really taken off. And I'm like anxiously awaiting Fridays every week now to get my installation of my latest installment of Foundation. I don't know if either one of you guys have watched it yet. Have either one of I'm, you? I'm about three episodes in. So Okay. It, John, it gets much better. It gets much better. So I, I'm going to agree with Andy. I think it's, it is the pinnacle of adaptation of that classic science fiction. Okay. I don't think, I don't think, I don't know how you could do it better. I, I think it's also like a pinnacle of, of mixing practical stuff with CGI because it was seamless in this. It really was seamless. Yeah, it was. Uh, all right. Before we get into our little spoiler space, the last question I always ask is who won the movie? I have an idea who won this movie, but uh, Andy, who do you think won the movie? We always do this with Babylon uh, 5, so we got to do it now. Uh, Paul won the movie. Uh, he's the one that... that came through it uh, with with the greatest character development and he that that knife fight that spectacular that that scene was spectacular that spectacular knife fight he had it, he, it, you could just see it in, in the actor's portrayal he realized that he was um, what what he was going to become and, he, and you could see him steal it inside of him you know that okay like that scene you mentioned with, with frodo that, that this is the moment mm-hmm. that he, be, he he graduates from being 
the son of you know Duke Atreides and becomes who he's going to become. Yeah, well said. I think I think that's perfectly valid answer, John. What do you think? I, I'm going to say somebody we haven't talked about. I'm going to say uh, Lady Jessica, Jer- uh, Jessica Ferguson. She was great. Uh, I think she. I think she, she was. Fam- I think she was really good. Uh, you know, powerful herself, but also concerned for her child and what was she had done to him and what he was going through and worried about her husband and uh, but also kind of you know taking care of stuff. She killed. Those two guards on the, you know, on the uh, ornithopter, like. Oh, know. that scene was great. That was much longer than the scene than the versions of that scene we've seen before, and I thought it was really effective. Yeah, it was effective. It showed how how intimidating and formidable the the uh, Benny Jessera could could be. I mean, they're not just uh, you know old ladies walking around with the the funny voice. They they're mm-hmm. legit Jedi type level characters. And John, you said Lady Jessica. I'm gonna. I'm going to I'm going to posit something here a hot take maybe. I think that Jessica is maybe the character that has been portrayed the best in all three versions cuz I love Saskia Reeves in the John Harrison version. I think she's wonderful in it. And I don't remember, I think it was uh what was the name? Jessica Annis or whatever that played her back in 84 and I thought she was okay. So, um, I can't think of many characters that have, I, Liet Kynes has been good in all three. You had Max, Max von Sydow. You had that dude with the kinkly blonde hair in the, I don't know who he was in the John Harrison version that was, that was very effective. I mean, he's very memorable. And then you had the lady in this one that was very, very good. So there are some interesting mid-level characters that have, I think, been done well in all three versions, regardless of the other considerations. So... All right, let's give the spoiler. Oh, I didn't say who I think won. I think that Dennis Villeneuve won it because he gave us this movie and he didn't compromise his vision and and delivered this thing, and I'm amazed. Um, So spoiler warning, spoiler warning, spoiler warning. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I just want to see if you guys have any thoughts about part two and particularly like compared to maybe how it's been portrayed before, how it was in the book, anything that you're expecting or demanding uh, where you have the bar set, that kind of thing. John, where are you kind of with regard to part two? And this is spoiler for Spoiler is away. Spoiler away. All the slow stuff was up to now. Part yeah. two is going to be the kick-ass part. All the great battle fight stuffs in part two. Um, you know, and there's going to be some kind of uh, Freeman home front kind of stuff too, where we're going to learn some things and there's going to be some interesting stuff there. But I think there's going to be a lot of that we're going to get the big scene where Paul rides the worm for the first time. Uh, and then we're going to get a lot of battles uh, and that kind of stuff. And I think that's going to be just awesome. Absolutely. I, and I think it's just like, you know, in the, it, the going from uh, Fellowship of the Ring to the Two Towers, they started and action was like, go. And I think we can do that at the second movie. We don't need an hour exposition anymore. We can go into it. Well, we do have a whole lot of like drinking the water of life and becoming the you know, whatever in the, there's a lot of siege tiber stuff to come. Okay. Let's be honest. There's, I'm, I'm really curious how Villeneuve is going to keep things moving with all that siege tiber business. That's fine. Cause in between they're going to be doing raids and killing, yeah. you know, Harkonnen guys. That's stuff. the so thing. I think, I think that's it. I think you got to pepper in a bunch of beast rabbin gunning people down and, and messing with the Fremen and, the orgy scenes with Fade and the women and everything, and and you bring in Irulan and the plotting in the Emperor's Palace. You got to mix that stuff in because otherwise, that Seats Tabber stuff, I'm gonna be like, oh God, just drink the water and get on with it, please. <laughs> but um, 
Because I just sat through, you know, three hours of that with a John Harrison version, and I'm like, man, it's like an LSD trip that won't end. So um, I'm really anxious to see who they cast as the Emperor and Irulan because they are very important in the second half. And I really want to see, I mean, you know, Jose Ferrer's don't grow on every tree. So you got to find somebody. I don't know who the dude was with white hair in the Harrison version. I don't know who that guy was. I'm just going to throw it out there. Yeah. You can't be Fane anymore if you bring Sting back. No. Emperor. Emperor he was Sting. supposed he he was supposed to have a cameo in this movie and they never oh. got around to uh getting him on set. Maybe the second one. Maybe the second. All right, Andy, go ahead. What are your what are your thoughts about part 2 and all that what you're demanding? I, I will counter what you said and all the the world building bio, biology and ecology stuff was my favorite part of the book. Okay. <laughs> I know that's what puts most people to sleep. Fair so enough. I'm super excited to see how how they present this in a palatable way for modern movie audiences. Because I know the book is very difficult very difficult for for your average Joe to get through because of that. Um so I'm excited to see that and they teased the 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 worm writing a couple times in in the first part. And I just cannot wait to see that in the second part. Um, another interesting bit that I noticed in the first part, when Paul was having his vision about when he, he became uh, Maldive and they were fighting and all that, the, uh, uh, they, the, the armor that they had was, was different from their still suits and all that stuff. They had really cool armor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't wait to see that. Uh, that's that's going to be cool to see you know, that part take off and, and see them do their thing. With, with, with their combat abilities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the big final act of this story is the most spectacular ending of any story pretty much ever. And that's only because season five of Babylon 5 kind of, you know, you know how that is, Andy. Um, <laughs> season, it's up there with season four of Babylon 5, let's be honest. All right. But I just, the ending just, they keep, you know, Herbert just keeps upping the ante and upping the ante. You've got... Okay, here come the Fidakin. Oh, here come the atomic bombs. Oh, here come people riding on all these sandworms. You know, oh, here comes the ornithopters. It's just one thing. After, oh, here comes Alia going to take out the Baron. Here comes, you know, and it just up and up and up. It's like every time you think, okay, now we've got the two sides ready, it ups, it ups again. And I just love how he keeps twisting and twisting the tension and bringing and ratcheting it up at the end. And then it all kind of comes down to that final denouement in the throne room or the, yeah, I guess the throne room, right? The knife fight is the flashy thing. But to me, the thing that really is powerful about that ending is the emperor up. This is where I say you got to build them up and build them up so that it seems like a huge accomplishment when you take them down. You build up the Sardaukar so it's a huge accomplishment when the Fidei can take them down. But you build up the emperor so that when he's like, he is so full of himself. I think in both versions that have been done, they did a great... This is like the best part of both of them, is that final scene. They both get it right. So Villeneuve has got a high bar, because they. if the two crappy versions got it right, he's got to get it right, okay? But you get that bit where the emperor is just like, how dare you speak to me? I'm the emperor. You can't... You desert rat. You can't talk to me like that. And then the freaking spacing guild is like, shut up, emperor. Let the man talk, whatever. And that's where you're like, ooh, right? Because they know the deal. Right, the spacing guild is one step ahead of everybody here. Uh, maybe the Bene Gesserit, and they know the deal, right? And so they are not gonna let that. You can see their like not loyalty, but you can see their interests shift visibly from the emperor to Paul 
And it, that is, to me, just one of the greatest moments in, in science fiction in any story is watching these powerful uh, groups that are all about themselves, right? And the emperor thinks they're about him and his empire. Oh, hell no. They're about their own interests. And if their interests are served by throwing him in the ditch and going with this other guy, they're gone. And they, when the emperor realizes that he's gone from being the most powerful man in the universe to nothing... That, to me, is like the sweetest, you know, finishing move on the... You don't need to hit him. You don't need to stab him. You don't need to kill him. Just have him realize that everything has been... Like the stock market crash, right? His billion dollars are gone. Everything has been taken away from him in that one instant just because the people that have been propping him up let him go. I love that. I think it's so brilliant. And I think that all the cool stuff that leads up to it Gives you that moment, and that's what I'm really looking forward to. So, I don't know, but um, well, any other spoiler thoughts? Let me go around the horn real quick. John, do you have any other spoiler thoughts about part two? Um, things that you're wanting them to get right, or things you're concerned about? I, maybe I, I think Ali is a weird character, yeah, and tough to cast, tough to execute. You know, the idea of a small child with the, the mind of a grown woman who's also kind of a, a killing machine is tough, right? Yeah, she's kind of a, a female Chucky doll kind of thing. So I, it's tough to pull off. And so I, I'm interested to see how they do that and, <laughs> and make good. it work. Um, like, oh. And I, I also, I, you know, um, I'm interested to see kind of how they, how far they go with the end of the story. Do they stop, you know, kind of at, after the big dinner you're talking about, or do they, in his vision, they're, you know, they're at Caladan the, carrying out the, the war there. So the I, jihad, they, at the jihad is the. Are we going to see a bunch of post doom fight jihad and, and Paul after that? So I that part I'm interested to see. Let, let me say it. I'm going to get to Andy. And we're going to wrap up. But Andy, th- this is the thing that I John just hit on something I'm wondering about. I've always said, and I want your reaction to this too. I've always said we are led to believe that Paul will be a much better ruler of the universe than the current emperor because the current emperor is corrupt. He's a politician, blah, 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 blah. When we step back from the story and quit thinking of Paul as our hero here to save the day, you could make a very convincing argument that the universe was much better off under Shaddam IV than it ever was under Paul because Paul unleashes this freaking jihad that is like the worst thing that could ever happen, right? And I'm like, we're told we're supposed to root for Paul, but you go back and go, maybe he should have lost, right? I mean, what do you think? I I, I think societal change on on that epic scale is always difficult and always violent and messy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the jihad isn't necessarily a great thing when compared to the stability of... Of what what the emperor had, but then you know the the allies invading Germany and Russia invading Germany weren't necessarily the best thing for the German populace, even though it got rid of a, a horrible monster. So, fair enough. I, yeah, I mean it's you know I I, I thought it was cool, but okay. you know I'm I, I'm not on the receiving end of the jihad. <laughs> well, that's true. I, I think that Herbert is just really good at making things kind of vague and questionable, where you have to act, where you do have to actually stop and ask yourself, is this really for the best? And I mean. He spends the next five books trying to explain why it all happened anyway, right? I mean, it has to be in it has to be in aid of something good, and it ends up obviously being the Golden Path and Leto the Second and blah 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 blah. But I mean, maybe the universe would have been better off if it never <laughs> if it never even went down the Atreides right. path. So if 
if history proves anything, there really aren't any good guys or bad guys. It's just people yeah. making the decisions they need to make to, to further their, their ends. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Johnny, last thoughts on that, just to come back. No, I mean, obviously in the, in the book series, there's a, there's a point that he goes to There's a reason that things happen to prepare people. Yeah. Uh, but, but, and, and whether you agree with that or not, it's, there, there is a point. I, the thing that I love the most about Dune is what you, you know, what Andy was talking about earlier about how he thought about kind of the future of people and by and how people would function in a far future society. And it wasn't about the gadgets, right? It's about human development uh, and the way that they lived uh, without those things. Um, and so they focused on other things. You know, and so I he really did some deep thinking about that and how that would change society and how people would function. And so I appreciate that because I think that that was kind of captured in this movie. Well, guys, I think we've uh, summed it up pretty well. Um, do you want to give a? I don't think we need to give a rating. I think we all think it was a, a, an A to A plus movie, right? So um, I think we can leave it that. Unless anybody wants to go below an A, I don't think any of us does. So I think we can leave it there. You know, I, I would like to mention that the uh, HBO Max and Vilnev have uh, announced a Benny Gesserit uh, TV series. So I thought that was very interesting in the fact that that Vilnev is not only being the showrunner, he's going to direct the first couple episodes. So I'm very, very curious to see where they go with that, how far back in history they go, if it's going to be run concurrently with the, the Dune story. I'm I'm really really curious to see what they do with that that series. I had totally forgotten about that. And I'm glad you mentioned it. That's right. 100. percent Do we know? Is that coming out before episode two or after? We don't know. Um, they haven't they haven't really said anything about it. it. It's far enough along where they know who the you know who's going to be directing what episodes of of you know early in the season. I don't know. You figure they'd want to strike while the iron is hot, and it's a lot easier to to yeah. push out a TV series. That, especially if it's already in pre-production then to to ramp up a whole new movie which isn't even in pre-production yet. And I think it's interesting that they're going to do the Bene Gesserit because you know we couldn't say this in the before the spoiler space but we can say it now that while the first two or three books and then I guess the fourth one cuz it's about Leto the second while those are about to some degree the the Atreides this series is really about the Bene Gesserit. And by the fifth and sixth books, you realize they are the stars of the show. They've been manipulating the treaties, but they are really the stars of the show. And so that's appropriate that, well, they end up like 8,000 versions of Duncan Idaho. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see when they actually focus the story on that. That's, that's a very good point. All right. And so, I think it could yeah. be very. It, because because it, it deals with strong women characters, yep, you know, yep, yep, plotting 100%. with other strong women characters. It's, it's not going to be male-oriented. No, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, you don't want to mess with them at all. That's awesome. All right. Um, I think we can leave it there. You guys good to go? Good to go. Good to go. ride the worm out of here. <laughs> we're going to throw, the, <laughs> throw out the thumper, guys, and hop on that worm, and we're going to get out of, out of here. John, Andy, I appreciate you coming on board. The White Rocket uh, podcast, which we are doing movie reviews and everything else, will return soon. And in fact, we've got uh, we'll be having the On Her Majesty's Secret podcast review of No Time to Die coming up in a few days as well. So we will see you guys down the road. Listen, uh, Patrick, well, Base here.
This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.